Good morning. All right. How many of you guys went to PRX's party? <laughs> yeah, that's why. Let's do it again. <laughs> Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. OK, cool. My name is Al, as she just said. And uh, next to me are two of the three people that make me look really good, um, <laughs> Tina and Laura. And then uh, the person that isn't here is Taki Telenidis, our senior editor. Um, and so basically, uh, come on in. Don't be shy. Have a seat. Come get a little colored slip of paper yes. if you don't have one. All right. Uh, what State of the Reunion does, um, well, basically, the concept of the show came from um, several weird life experiences. Uh, I used to be a flight attendant for like 10 years, but I was also a, um, a performing artist, and I would go to different places and see communities. And because I was um, a performance poet, I was sleeping on people's couches. So I really got into kind of what community is and seeing community on the ground level. And because I was a flight attendant, I was going all over the country with it. So um, when I had the opportunity to create a show, I thought that I wanted to do a show that basically reflected um, kind of the other side of what America is, because so much of what we see in the media um, kind of frames America in one, one sense. And I thought that there's a lot of Tra um, hard times in America, but there's also a lot of people who are figuring it out, and I wanted to tell that story um, of communities com kind of coming together. So that's kind of what the concept is, is basically that we do storytelling in different locations across the country about community and how people are bringing it together, the circumstances that are challenging them, uh, the conflicts within a community. Um, we release about anywhere between 10 to, uh, this year we're actually doing 13 shows. Um, and so what happens with that is uh, Tina lives in Western Massachusetts. Laura lives uh, in, I was about to say the Bronx. Laura lives in Brooklyn. And, um, and Taki, our senior editor, lives in Salt Lake City. And so we basically, uh, me and- And Dallas in Florida. Yeah, and I'm in Florida. Uh, and me and Tina will meet somewhere. And then a week later, me and Laura will meet somewhere else. Um, Everybody will go back home and we'll make the episodes together through, you know, using the telephone, video, blah, 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 all of that. Um, so Tina and Laura individually are responsible for about five episodes apiece. Um, a year. A year. And I do um, all the episodes. And then, you know, if we have specials, then we divide them up as, as, as needed as well. Um, and so what we really try to do... What I'd, what I'd like to do is make the listener feel like they are a resident of that city for the hour that we're there. And so we really try to give a sense of place. Um, I'm under no illusion that you can tell the story of an entire city in an hour. And so we kind of focus what we're doing around themes. Um, you know, we, we come up with a, we, when we start researching uh, the places that we're going, we come up with themes and those themes are kind of what ties the episode together. So um, what we're going to be talking about this hour is um, how you do that, how you go to a place in a very short amount of time and provide uh, a fairly deep sense of place, how you evoke that sense of place. And um, to, to get you all thinking the way that we start thinking when we're starting to research a place, this is where these little slips of paper are going to come in. Uh, we have a little exercise for you. Um, think about the place that you live. Um, and write down a sound, a song, a historical event, a building, a block, a person, something that really evokes that place for you, that is sort of gets at the itness of that place. 
Um, and while you're writing and thinking about that, we're going to play you a little uh, montage of voices from various places that we've been over the past couple of years. No hot diving, no bike flipping, no belly busting, no seagull feeding, no, no pelican chasing, no dolphin riding. Don't run up and down the boat, don't climb the pole, don't holler at the captain, don't bother the deckhand, that's me. In the Bronx, Bronx people make something out of nothing. This is what the Bronx me to me. We make something out of nothing. It's just sheer creativity. Ten years ago, eleven years ago, there was nothing. No, no Hispanic people. I mean, if you saw one, like you were happy, like they hi. I'm yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Mexican too. I'm Hispanic. Uh, there's a lot of people that don't like Wyoming, and I think that's great. Keeps them out of here. <laughs> For everybody that hates Wyoming, that's one less person we got to put up with. My wife and I have lived here for uh, 12 years. My nearest neighbor lives in Mexico. What I said was that, you know, my name is Pakayatut, is my Indian name. My real name is Rex Buck Jr. We welcome you to this land and that this land is Indian. Every time I pray, I will be in an English service, but I repeat the prayers in Swahili. When they recite the Lord's Prayer, I know it in English, you know, but it just sounds real to me when I'm speaking it in, in, in Swahili. So I told God, if this is what you want me to do, I'll do it. If that plant could grow through that in Greensburg, I could. I'm not a tree hugger. I'm not an activist. I'm just, a, you know, this is my, this is where I live. You know, this is my town. It's a small, gossipy, how would I say this? It's um, just a bunch of drunks, I'll tell you the truth. We are independent, cussed people. Sacramento. Man, Sacramento sucks. You know, and I'm born and raised here and I'll probably die here, but there's so much about Sacramento that's just, it's not there right now. I hella love Oakland. <laughs> I love, 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 love Oakland. This is an incredible place. Man, it is an incredible place. So, did everyone have enough time to think and write down something on your flag? If you just came in, you can come and get a colored piece of paper. And, and you're welcome to think about it and then at the end uh, come and pin your, your flag up. But Yeah, but, but uh, I would love to just hear from a couple people just what did you write down and if you are willing to come and get a pin and pin, pin, your, pin your flag on the map um, and come up, come up and stand and, and we'll just ask you what you wrote down and why. Anybody? Yeah, come on up. <laughs> um, so I wrote uh, down to roasting chilies and steel drums. Because um, I live in Santa Fe, Mexico. Mm -hmm. We realize that the U.S. is getting a little crowded. <laughs> 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 that's, that's so chilies, roasting, and drums, what does it sound like? Um, there's like the crackling of the skins, and there's some pop off of the chilies. There's these huge propane tanks. Um, and so there's flames that are like roasting. And then a lot of times the guys that are rotating the drums are yelling and kind of like getting people to come in to check out their stuff. Wow. I love that. 
Could you repeat what's been said in the mic because uh, it's difficult to hear? Yeah, sure, sorry. She said she is from Santa Fe, New Mexico, and what, what she would uh, think of as iconic an iconic sound from that place is the sound of chili peppers roasting in a drum and these propane, propane tanks that are fired up, blasting heat and the sounds of the people cooking. Mm-hmm. Um. This is one of my favorite things about Los Angeles is the tree roots pushing up underneath the sidewalks and the asphalt and breaking up. So you see this like rippling buckling of sidewalks and stuff. You can't hear it. Well, you could maybe if you were there at the exact right time. <laughs> I've never heard it. I imagine it's a great sound. That's amazing. Can everybody hear that? Is that one okay? Yeah, somebody else. These are amazing. Um, I wrote two. There are different ends of the spectrum. I live in San Francisco, so I said fog horns, which you can hear anywhere in the city. You're never that far away from the fog and the horns. And scrub jays, which are the West Coast version of blue jays. We don't have blue jays on the West Coast. And they're very pluralist, cranky. Are they the ones that sound kind of like squeegees? (laughs) (laughs) It's a weird noise. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for that. You can use that second that mic by the. Oh yeah, that one. No, it's not. Okay, so I'm from Bogota, Colombia, and um, I was thinking about the bus vendors that go into the bus and they just start shouting about their products that they're selling all the time. Cool. So cool. That was. So, so part of why we had you do this exercise is this is what we do before we go into a place, is we start brainstorming got from all of the research that we've gathered, which we'll talk about um, in just a second. Uh, we start researching um, and brainstorming what are the sounds that we want to collect while we're in a place. We almost make ourselves sort of a checklist of these sorts of things. Um, because when you're on the ground in a place uh, for only a few days, you've got to like target what you got to grab while you're there. So this is like kind of an exercise that we're used to doing for ourselves. And just to give you guys an idea of the the particulars, the concrete things of what are our constraints when we're trying to come up with uh, what are the stories we're going to tell in an episode, how are we going to find the stories, how are we going to tell them, um, report them in a short amount of time. So we have uh, usually a week on the ground, can be as short as five days, sometimes eight, but we have about a week on the ground in each place that we go. Um, We report six or seven stories during that week. That ends up being 20 plus interviews uh, during the week that we have to do. Um, We come home with 20, 25, 30 hours of tape to go through, and all of that ends up being uh, about 52 minutes of radio. Um, Usually one of the stories that we report will get cut, so we've got an extra one um, Mm -hmm. in our back pocket that we come home with. And for me, uh, I had always worked as a freelancer before, so and I was a slow worker, so I would sometimes take a year to do one story and follow something unfolding over time, and that was kind of my style and what I was into doing. So this was a complete 
flip for me. And um, I had to learn a whole set of new skills, which is, you know, what we're going to go through in a minute. And, and Tina came from a different background as well. Yeah, I came to, to I'd done documentaries before, but um, I came from doing daily news and working as a, a news host. So I was used to having four hours to do something and, and that's it. But, um, but I was also used to reporting things in a fairly superficial way. And part of State of the Reunion's goal is to be telling relatively deep stories that really sort of um, evoke the everyday life in a place. So we both had our own set of challenges in terms of trying to figure out how to do this work. Um, so we're going to start out sort of at the beginning of a res our research process for a particular episode. Um, we usually decide that we're going to a place based on maybe one story that somebody has found. And then Laura and I are both tasked with filling out this hour, finding what the stories should be for this hour. And so what I found is that my first step is actually finding the people that I like to call the connectors. And um, these can be uh, local um, public radio journalists that I've met at the Third Coast Festival. So if you live someplace interesting, come talk to us, because I might call you up. <laughs> um, but if I don't know somebody there, or if there isn't a friendly journalist that I happen to have met, um, I'll call up the head of a nonprofit uh, agency. I'll call up the leader of a local knitting circle. I will call up the founder of an arts group. I'm looking for people in a community who are really rooted in that community, who have a big network, know lots of people, and know the place really well. And basically, I'll call them up on the phone and ask them a series of questions. I'll ask them, uh, what would be surprising about this place to an outsider uh, that everybody who lives in this place knows about, but elsewhere, not so much? What is... Um, what is a story or stories that um, you feel are really important but have not gotten the attention that they deserved, um, not headline news? What are the everyday things that people aren't attending to? Who are, the, who are the individuals that are the most fascinating that I should give a call? And so usually through these sorts of fairly general questions, something starts to percolate that catches my curiosity. And, and really a lot of the research is like following your curiosity. Um, but this can actually work, it turns out. Um, <laughs> I wanted to play you a little example of somebody that I found through a connector that I don't think I otherwise would have encountered. Um, this is from our Miami episode. Uh, and um, it's this guy named Leroy Jones. He is a high school dropout, a former drug dealer um, who'd served time in prison. Uh, though I didn't know any of that. You wouldn't know any of that if you just encountered, say, his website or his business. He's a very, very successful, savvy, small businessman. Um, and it turns out he got that way using skills he developed on the streets. You know, I started very young, man. I started, like, selling dope needles for a dollar when I was 10 years old. We used to buy them from the junkies that worked for Jackson Hospital. They would sell us a box. They called them works. You know, they would sell us a box of works with 100 in it for $100. We sold them for $2. We made a $100 profit off every box. So starting that way, he actually build, built the business skills that have turned him into an award, like he's award, um, won awards from the county in Miami. And from the outside, you would have no idea that there was this story in this man. But I'd called up a local activist who um, had responded to that question about who's a fascinating guy. And there, he was like, this guy, he just went back to high school, like Billy Madison style, and finished out like going to school every day in his 50s. Um, so you can find people that way. Mm -hmm. And uh, we 
do spend a lot of time on the phone making those kinds of calls, uh, a lot of hours on the phone just calling people up who are the connectors in a community. Um, I also spend a lot of time on the internet, and the places that I tend to go are like the least slick corners of the internet. So I look at like really crappy homemade websites uh, that someone just made themselves. I look at church newsletters and events calendars. I read local papers, which sometimes have rather nice websites, but just to try to get a sense of what's unfolding on the ground in that particular place at that moment. Um, so I'll, sh I'll show you an example um, of a website that uh, I found when I was researching our Wyoming episode. So I basically picked Wyoming and wanted to go to Wyoming and had to find stories in Wyoming. And you know, a lot of things in Wyoming don't really have a strong internet presence. So this is one of the worst websites I've ever seen. Um, <laughs> this is a website for an event called Bibles and Beer that I sort of stumbled upon going through one of those internet rabbit holes that you that you go through. I don't even remember how I really ended up here, but this is a Bible study happy hour that a pastor came up with. His congregation was aging and and shrinking and he was a new pastor and really wanted to figure out some way to bring new members in to get more people interested in the church and find find some way to access a population that he really wasn't getting at so we started this happy hour bible study which we ended up uh, doing a story about and uh, this is just a quick excerpt from that piece um, at the happy hour Bible study at Uncle Charlie's bar in Cheyenne, Wyoming. And this, this evening they were talking about uh, Cain and Abel. If there is a hell, and that's a big if in my mind, it's a profound separation, a profound loneliness. So if you do those kinds of things, you have to understand that you will be separating yourself from God and all of creation. And maybe I'm reading too much into it, but to me, the story is kind of a metaphor for hell. In that context, what does the mark mean? I don't have the vaguest idea. Get into that <laughs> one. <laughs> Can't help you. <laughs> you know, the Bible is much better studied in community. Much, much better understood in community than it is, you know, if I, if I sit down and read it alone and, and wrestle with what it means. That's got to be challenging uh, for you. I mean, because it, it means that you're in the hot seat a lot. You know, it kind of relies on you to help the other people understand where you're coming from on that, which is really different from what you do on a, on a pulpit every Sunday. Well, I, I really uh, make an effort to avoid that dynamic. Um, because I, I don't, I, I'm, you know, I'm like everybody else around that table. I'm guessing at what this stuff means. I, hopefully it's an educated guess that comes from a lot of study. But we're all guessing. And um, so I try to avoid uh, being looked at as the, the fellow with the answers. So the, the lesson there to me is that behind a, a website that is really unappealing, there's a whole life uh, a whole population of people doing something in real life. Um, and if you can just get get through that and find them, you can find some really amazing things. One of the uh, things that we always want to be aware of is that we are kind of parachuting into a place 
and um, looking at it from a little bit of a different perspective than people who actually live in that city. Uh, you know, our goal when we're done is that when people who live in the city listen to it, they say, a, a lot of times people tell us we found things that they didn't know about in their own city, uh, which is great, but also we want them to feel like we got the essence of their city correct. Uh, and one of the ways that we try to ensure that we do that is that we go out and we look for letters to the city. And what that is basically is that we're just asking people in the community to write a letter to the city where they personify their relationship with the city. So sometimes these letters are uh, Dear John letters. Sometimes they're I love you, but I'm tired of you leaving the underwear on the floor letters. Um, it's just a different mix of, of whatever that person's connection is. And um, you know, you just hear some of the most uh, surprising things about a place when you allow people to speak directly to it. I think one of my favorite letters, we're not gonna play this one, but one of my favorite letters was from a pastor in uh, Baltimore um, who basically was writing about the phrase at risk. And he was just saying that, you know, Without the phrase at risk, none of the nonprofits in Baltimore would ever make any money because everything's <laughs> got to be at risk. Um, and it, and, but it was a great letter that really kind of summed up the way he saw Baltimore and the people who listened to it that I spoke to from Baltimore you know, didn't think about it in that sense. But when they heard him say it, they were like, that's exactly right. Um, so uh, this letter we're playing was actually produced by one of our fabulous interns, uh, Sarah Brooke Curtis. Uh, w one thing that I, I didn't say earlier is that like while Tina and Laura and Taki and myself, um, you know, wrestle with these episodes, we, we kind of have a small army of interns that help us get through it. Uh, they're, they're amazing and without them, like the show wouldn't get made. And I, I think we have at least, I know at least one in the audience today. Is there any other? Jordan, you want to stand up? That's Jordan hey. Fletcher, <laughs> current or almost former, <laughs> almost yeah, former yeah, yeah, yeah. so true intern. Right on. Um, uh, so yeah, so this was actually produced for uh, a live show that we did in Baltimore. Mm -hmm. So um, the pictures are from Sarah Brooke Curtis, and the letter itself is from was produced by Laura. Yeah, and it comes from uh, Vermont. <laughs> Dear Vermont, I'm fond of your quaint white villages and graceful rolling hills, yes, but it's the other stuff that brought me back. Your hippie cabins and rusted cars, your outhouses and hard luck Budweiser at 9am hillside farms, your renegade marijuana patches and mustard and teal colored trailers flanked by creeks and hollows and gravel pits and pines. I came back for your ghosts, the ones I've known and the ones I haven't. Their stone walls and cellar holes and woodland graveyards scrawled with names. Zipporah, Ebenezer, Faith, Desire. I came back for your people, too. The way your craggy, close-knit hills and small skies have bred and brought obstinance, eccentricity, and goodness. Young hippies and old farmers, old hippies and young farmers. I'm not after what's pretty or clear or easy, because like all good lovers, it's the complicated ones that stick. So like I said, I came back. I planted seeds in your rock-studded fertile earth and birthed a child. I feed her on your clear spring water and ripe blackberries. I teach her the names of trees and the names of the dead. I teach her how to piss by the side of the road and how to tap a maple 
and how to catch a snowflake on her tongue. Because it's not a slight thing to know you like this, to know all the dappled contradictions of your borderland, the textures of old and new, of light and dark. It's a kind of knowing that follows us wherever we go, that tells us to look below the surface, to sniff around, and to listen, that teaches us to be unafraid of what's eccentric, or broken, or wild, and maybe, if we're lucky, teaches us to care. Robin MacArthur So when I hear that letter, I just think of Vermont. It just, it captures something about Vermont. And when we're putting together the collection of stories for an episode, I'm looking for that identifiable quality, something to hold on to that will connect all of the stories in the episode to make them coherent and make them hang together. And as I'm talking to people and finding stories, sometimes I'll start to hear a theme that's being reflected back in, in the voices of the people that I'm talking to as I'm researching. And I start thinking of the place itself as a character. Um, so just to give you an example, um, Sacramento, California, very hard hit by the recession, very down and out kind of a place. And as I was researching stories in Sacramento, I started to think of Sacramento as kind of this washed up, unglamorous dude with an inferiority complex um, who might surprise you with how scrappy he could be when his back was pushed up against the wall. And uh, when I was researching an episode in Birmingham, Alabama, I started to think about Birmingham as this uh, woman with a dramatic troubled past. She's known for it, and sometimes she might even be revered for it, but she's toying with the idea of reinventing herself. And I kind of will start to see these characters just reflected a little bit in each of the stories in an episode. Um, and I know that the task for most of the people here isn't going to be to connect a bunch of stories from the same place. But I think that something really interesting can happen if, as you're reporting in a particular place, you start to think about that place as a character. And just look for little places in the story where that could be reflected out, whether it's in your writing or a, a sound that you might pull out, like one of the sounds you guys talked about on the map earlier. And, and as we're sort of honing in on those themes that, that Laura is talking about, one of the things that we do is constantly check them with the people that we're pre-interviewing. This is before we've actually even gotten to the place. Um, to see if what we're gathering um, to be a theme actually resonates with the people who live there, um, to see if we need to tweak it somehow. And then when we actually do get on the ground, we ask everybody that we interview um, one or two questions that are the same, regardless of what story they're actually in. Um, and this is, again, to sort of have that thread through all of these stories that help bring to the surface this idea about a place. And the answers to those questions that, that we ask everybody become um, a little montage at the end of every episode. And it's almost like this little mini story slash meta story about a place. Um, and sometimes people's answers are really cohesive and they seem to agree and it like feels like this beautiful like narrative um, like final punch. And sometimes their answers are really incohesive and that actually ends up being sort of the, um, the takeaway about the place as well. And we, um, we thought we'd play you uh, one of the final montages. This is from the Las Vegas episode and, and it, it is a little one of those like 
coming from different directions, but it actually ends up giving you just a taste of what the place has been like over the course of the episode. Our state motto is home means Nevada. For me, home means Las Vegas. Uh, being born and raised here, I, I'm, I, don't, I don't love Las Vegas. I'm in love with Las Vegas every single day that I wake up. I think the desert, for me, represents the real essence of Las Vegas and the real essence of the Mojave Desert. I've been impassioned by that for a long time. I think by nature, just in general. It really is a city that never sleeps. I, if I want to go out and buy a pair of gym shoes at 2 in the morning, assuming I have the money to do that, I can go do that. I can go down to farm shops and, and shop for shoes. I kind of hang around here just to see what's going to happen next. Because this place is the place where everybody comes to either get their life together or go beneath the waves. So I just sit around and just go, okay, what's gonna happen next? Cause this place is, this place is an enigma wrapped in a mystery and surrounded by a huge ironic joke. It's crazy here. And with the, um, with the, uh, montages that happen at the end also comes my wrap up which uh tends to be like kind of my take on it what we'd like to do in the hour is is kind of help the listener experience a place through me as a host uh and so you know what we try to do is uh take all the experiences and stories that we've heard and kind of sum it up sometimes that can be uh really easy um, and sometimes it can be ridiculously difficult, especially if we're someplace that I didn't really fall in love with. Um, it, and that doesn't happen often. I mean, usually, um, I would say I'm a pretty, you know, glasses half full type Al guy. tends to fall in love. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, te I tend to fall in love with the place. But, uh, but every now and then, like, I'm really like, get me the hell out of here now. Um, specifically, like, I, I think one of those places was... Uh, the uh, Mississippi Gulf Coast. Um, for me, that was just a really hard story because we were telling stories about uh, the um, the oil spill, um, but also, you know, we're in uh, Mississippi, um, and not just Mississippi. We're in Mississippi, goddamn, and um, it was challenging as a black man being in in that location. Um, not that anyone specifically treated me badly, but just the social norms are, are a little bit different than what I'm used to dealing with. So I was really ready to get out of there. So when I'm writing a wrap up, like all those thoughts kind of come into mind. Uh, I, I never want to leave people like listening to an hour of the show and like, oh my God, America's screwed. I want to shoot myself. Um, but sometimes maybe they should feel that way. <laughs> so so um, here's, here's a, uh, uh, one of my wrap ups, uh, and this is from Tucson. And, uh, and the Tucson one was, was you know, thinking back was a little difficult to write as well because we were telling these uh, stories about people dying in the desert, um, migrants crossing over from uh, Mexico into uh, into the Sonoran Desert and, and them dying there. And you know, on a whole, we just as a nation don't really care. Um, and you know, I, I at one of my visits to Tucson, I actually sat in. Uh, and watch them do a forensic, um, uh, it's not an autopsy, but a forensic examination of a, of a dead body. And, um, and it, it was intense. It was a, it was an, a really intense experience. Um, 
So I, this isn't my favorite wrap up of all time, but uh, but we'll play it. I'm Al Letson, and you're listening to State of the Reunion. Sorry. Session might carry him into a career. That looks just like diamonds on velvet, doesn't it? <laughs> it's, it's even bigger than the Hercules cluster. It's, it's, Borderlands. We said that word a few times this hour. The desert landscape where America and Mexico meet, where Tucson sits sparkling at night, its own little collection of stars under a huge sky. You might think the people of Tucson would easily get lost in all the layers of history and the chatter of politics, but actually, that's not what happens in this borderland. Borders don't muddy the waters of who we are. They bring who we are into focus. When you walk right up to a divide, a border wall that cuts the Sonoran Desert in half, or a political barrier in Tucson itself that stings like an electric fence when you get too close, you know who you are. You might be seeking a new life on the other side. You might have to let go of all your loyalties, but whatever happens, you know who you are once you cross. And Tucsonans know exactly who they are. So uh, we would love to take a bunch of questions. We're going to go over some of the challenges, because obviously this doesn't work perfectly um, all of the time. Uh, but we also would love to sort of know what you guys want to know more about. We're, we're happy to talk more. But um, as far as that, there, there are some places that are very, very, very hard to drop into. Um, we've been working on uh, a couple of times we've attempted to um, start working on an episode uh, in a Native American reservation. And each time our usual method of trying to break into a place over the phone to, to find the people to speak with, to, to get them to know us and to, um, to trust us, <laughs> um, that hasn't worked. So I think that there, in more rural or insular places, this is gonna be a lot more challenging. Um, but the thing that I have found that has worked in some of those more um, rural places is to almost sort of treat it like you are going to report in a foreign country and you need, kind of need to find uh, almost a fixer. Now, we don't hire somebody to be a fixer, but, um, but you need somebody who is going to almost be your guide because it, it is almost as if you are a foreigner in this place um, and you are going to be treated as such and you are going to not understand necessarily how things work in this place. So in this, it's, it's almost like beyond a connector, you need to find this person who can um, be your advocate, basically, who will get what we're trying to do, the stories that we're trying to tell, and will introduce us to other people, um, will sort of help pave the way for us to come in, and that those people can, can really be the door openers to a, a more insular place. Um, a situation where, where that um, proved to be really essential was when we were in um, rural Appalachia in West Virginia, and we were working on um, sort of a, a series of stories that were all, all had to do with mountaintop removal mining. And uh, one woman that I talked to early, early on had become, uh, she, she was actually a character in the story, but she um, took us one of the days that we were out there to a town that had been um, almost entirely emptied uh, by a coal company who'd bought up the town because it's um, sort of right below a mountaintop removal site. And there was one elderly couple that had refused to sell. So they were the last people left in this town. I don't even know if they had a phone. It didn't feel like they had a phone. But thanks to Maria um, sort of taking us under her wing, she brought us out to this little town of Lindytown. And um, we thought we'd play you a little bit of the, the people that I met there. 
Uh, these are Mr. and Mrs. Richmond, Lawrence Richmond and his wife, Quimby. One family is holding out in Lindytown, unwilling to sell to the coal company, Lawrence and Quinny Richmond. Their trimly painted house with beautiful vegetable garden sits just at the base of one of the mountains. Right above their house, perched on a ridge, is a giant rock that Maria eyes nervously. They're an 85-year-old couple. Mr. Richmond fought in, the world, in World War II, and now the poor fellow don't even have the rights to protect his own home. And if they keep blasting, that rock's going to come tumbling down. Absolutely, that rock's going to come tumbling down. It's what gravity does. Yeah. We hear bicing about every day, you know. It, sometimes it's loud and you feel it right in the bottom of the floor to your feet. It's just like, <laughs> just for a second. Mr. Richmond says he remembers when this was a lively little town full of neighbors to socialize with. And now, all of that is gone. Yep, we're the last ones left here. My son's over there. Now, you wouldn't think that an in individual or individuals would uh, call this home in a place as desolate as what this is at the present time. This, this neighborhood here has become part of me since I was just a young fellow after World War II, you know, and so... Uh, when they wanted me to move, I decided that I didn't want to move. <laughs> he got stubborn. <laughs> uh, and uh, sentimentally, this is just as important to me as what that coal is up on the hill from Ashy Energy, you know. Lawrence and Quinny are at peace with their decision to stay. But when you walk outside and look at the abandoned houses around them, and then look up the mountain directly behind their house, with the boulder poised to fall, you can't help but wonder what will happen to them. So I just want to mention quickly, like one of the one of the challenges um, when you're going into a really, really heavily scheduled week. You have a lot of stuff to get done. Um, and pretty much every time my plane takes off for wherever we're going, there are some things that I do not have lined up. Um, maybe it's one interview. Hopefully it's only one. Sometimes it's a few. Um, and the reason that happens is because there, you know, sometimes it's just logistical stuff. You have trouble getting a hold of someone, trouble pinning them down for what time they're available. But more often it's something where, um, I want to get in touch with a particular person, and I know I'm not going to be able to put that in motion until I meet some of the other people and they connect me with that person. So some of that stuff happens on the ground. It doesn't all happen um, before we leave for a place. Um, and it's tempting to just want to schedule every single day, morning to night, but I always make sure to leave like a half day or even a full day, you know, two half days somewhere throughout the week that are open because I know I'm going to have to pick up loose ends. I know I'm going to have to find people and, and have time to follow up on things. Um, so just to give an example, in Sacramento, California, we were doing a couple of different stories about um, basically like the epidemic of chronic homelessness in that city. And I really wanted, for this one story we were doing, it was about how churches 
uh, in Sacramento two winters ago had this program where a, a church would open up their doors for a week and become a temporary shelter because the city wasn't able to fund the regular shelter, the wintertime shelter for homeless people. So all these churches banded together and decided, you take this week, I'll take that week, and they became shelters for a week at a time. So I really wanted to capture not just how this affected the people in the congregation, but how it affected the people who stayed in these churches. What was it like for them? That was something I was not going to be able to line up um, until I got to Sacramento. So I found this couple who really connected with this guy that they had met who stayed at their church. And he was this incredible prodigy piano player who kind of wandered over to the piano and started playing and like blew everyone away. And that became the nightly ritual um, at, their, at their church for the time that he was there. Then they were still in touch with him. They had become very attached to him, but they couldn't find him. So my dates for reporting were approaching. They couldn't find this guy. I scheduled my interview with them at the end of the week, hoping that over the course of the week they would keep looking for him and find him. They were calling shelters. They were driving around looking for him, just really helping, um, doing a lot to try to help uh, so that I could meet him as well. Scheduled their interview. Um, it was my last night in town, and they had called him and left all these messages. And um, I'm sitting in the interview with them, and I'm kind of dragging it out because I'm really hoping that their phone is going to ring. And I've been with them for a long time. And finally, I was like, OK, you know, we'll just let it kind of wind down. And we're all watching the phone that's sitting on the table. And then all of a sudden, the phone does ring. And it's James, this guy. So he's like, oh, I'm, I'm downtown. I'm downtown. I just didn't get your messages. And I'm here. So we all hopped in the car, drove to downtown Sacramento. It took a little while to find him because he was kind of walking around. We found him. We brought him back to the church and um, ended up getting this story of the night that they met him and, and got him to play the church piano as well. One evening, Donna and Chuck were helping to serve dinner in the church's basement auditorium. Uh, in this downstairs area where, you know, literally over a hundred people with plus volunteers, a couple of dozen. And Yet Donna couldn't help but notice one man in particular. Well, he and I made eye contact when he first came in, and there was just a draw. The man's name was James Dawson, Donna would later find out, and he remembers that night vividly. Okay, so we get downstairs. I see the love of my life, the grand piano downstairs, and I was immediately drawn to it. He said to me when he first came in, even before he ate, he said, would it be okay if I went and played the piano? And I said, well, of course. got on the, um, the keys and put everybody to sleep, you know, from a long, hard day of uh, aimlessly wandering. <laughs> everybody kind of... So that was kind of a, you know, I took a gamble, wasn't sure if that was going to uh, work out. I don't think that that story really would have worked without James. I was kind of trying to think through what will I do if we don't find James. I didn't have a good answer, but luckily, you know, I had left some extra time, so it, so it worked out. So basically all I'm saying is don't schedule every single minute. Um, it's, oh, you're always, you have to leave room for surprises to happen. Yeah, and it's, I, I think it's worth saying as well that we operate on a very, very shoestring budget, and so we don't have the opportunity to go back. Like, we got to get it. 
Um, we got seven to eight days to to get it, and that's where we live. If we don't get it, then you know we're we really got a yeah, we, <laughs> we got to figure some stuff out because um, there's definitely no going back. Um, we have one more piece of tape, but I think we're we it's it's a fun one that we'd like to close on. So, are there people who have questions that we can answer in the meantime? Really? Mm, okay. <laughs> uh, go ahead. When you guys find that fixer character, what do you tell him mm -hmm. or her? You know, really, that initial conversation. Um, With the, can you? Say oh yeah. It, so the question was, when we find that sort of fixer character, what do we tell them? Um, and I would say that usually my first conversation with them, I'm almost sort of treating them like they're just a connector, not just a connector, but like I'm having the, that initial conversation with them sort of as I have with lots and lots of people who may or may not end up being actually in a story. Um, and usually during that, that conversation, I'm not only asking those questions, but I'm telling them a little bit about our show because we don't operate like a normal journalistic show. I mean, we're... The, the focus on what builds community is a little bit of a different angle than a lot of um, people who are focused on the news. Like I'm actually asking them to tell me what isn't news about their community. Um, and so usually that conversation, if, if we have like a good back and forth, there is, especially if they're people who are like really care about the place that they live and we can tap into that investment that they have in the place and to representing it well and to representing the issue that they care about, um, well, then we have an advocate. So it's basically like who, I'm as much telling them who we are and what we do as I am trying to get those initial ideas from that person. And then if, if I find that in the story, like in the case of the mountaintop removal mining story, um, I was always asking people like, who, who, who do we need to talk to that isn't usually consulted about this, who has a really different perspective? And um, I knew that there were these towns that were vanishing. And so when I found Maria, because she actually is a, a fairly major character earlier in the episode, um, she has her own story of how she got sort of called into um, activism about this. Uh, I asked her about vanishing towns because it's in her part of West Virginia that there are some of these. And she said, I know a couple. And you know, when we do our interview, we can get in the car and go out there. I don't, I don't think I can get in touch with them outside of that. So, um, so really it is like you're, and it's a fine line, you know, you're not, you're not trying to, um, we still have to maintain a little bit of a, um, editorial remove. Like I don't want her to believe that we're just telling her story and she can just shape it, you know? And that's a, that's a distinction, especially when you're doing something about, uh, a, a story that is like totally a heart story for somebody. Um, and they really feel like you're on board with them is trying to be able to walk that line. But, um, but it's as much sort of getting them to get who we are and what we're doing. And even when you don't have uh, a mission like State of the Reunion's mission, I feel like there, if you have an intention, people can read that you know, um, for your story. So that's, that's what I'd say about that. Anybody else? when you guys were like questioning whether you were accurately representing the city versus, you know, are we playing the stereotypes, whether it's with like music choice or the stories you choose or... Yeah, all the time. I mean, I think that... You know, sometimes we don't get it right. Oh, can you yeah. repeat the question? Oh, oh I'm sorry. Um, I mean, basically the question was... Um, say it again so I can... <laughs> was there ever a specific time when you were sort of grappling with are we accurately representing the city in a way 
Yeah, was there, was there ever a time where we've grappled with whether or not we are representing a city correctly um, in, in the things that we do and whether and, we're playing and, the stereotypes? Right, are, are, we, are we just reinforcing this? Yeah, I, I, I would say like there's a, the answer is yes, we think about it all the time. There's a couple different ways that that kind of falls in. Um, I, I think that with every episode, we tend to go to a city um, with a little bit of a preconceived notion. But the preconceived notion is there to be proven wrong. Like, I mean, we, we want to look at uh, the surprising thing that's happening that people uh, ordinarily wouldn't think of. And so, um, and, and you know, I, I believe in being really honest about, like, where I am as the host. And so, like, like I didn't want to go to Appalachia at all. I, I just... All I could hear was deliverance in the back of my head. Um, and that's not what I experienced at all in Appalachia. I, I, I fell in love with, with the area. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think that we, we talk a lot about how we do that. But we also, you know, when we think about music, we think about invoking a sense of place as well. And I would say that we also ask people straight up yeah. about the stereotypes. You know, one of the, and, and some episodes more than others. I mean, sort of from the outside of the Appalachia episode, we were um, sort of one of the themes that we were dealing with is, is the representation of people in Appalachia and how much of that is true and how much of it isn't. And so that was like the question that we were asking everybody, uh, yeah. everybody that we interviewed was about that. So in some ways, but the thing about stereotypes is sometimes they're just total BS and sometimes there's actually like this sort of root of truth in them, but it's complicated and so, we're trying to like navigate all of that complexity in yep. these episodes and you know sometimes we hit that just right and sometimes it's clear that we're wrestling yeah, <laughs> with so, it. Some t I, I would say that there are some places where I feel like we didn't exactly uh, hit it. We, we gave it a, a good shot but maybe something in our um, in the way we, we looked at things we, we, we missed something. I, I'll, I'll never forget like I got this email from somebody about uh, the Espanola episode that we did. And um, it was really, I, I thought it was a, a good episode. But when we did the history of the place, you know, like we had to get through the history kind of quick so we could get to the, the, the then. And I think that we left out, um, and this has been like two or three years ago, so forgive me if I'm wrong. Yeah, I, th I think it was like the clash of, we, we skimmed over the clash of the Native Americans that were living in that area and the uh, Spanish who came into that area. Um, and we said something about it, but but I felt like we should have done a little bit more. And so I got a couple emails saying that to me. So yeah, I mean, like you don't always get it 100% right. Laura, you were saying yesterday? Yeah. Um well, I just remembered that also in Wyoming, we got a note from someone who's like, how could you have done a whole Wyoming episode and you didn't go onto a reservation? Um, and we actually have tried a couple of times right. to find an end to do an episode that does take place entirely on a reservation, and we just haven't found uh, a place where we can break in over the phone. And I think it takes a long time. So that that you just reminded me of that. But yep. also um, talking about not not really getting it. Um, we did an episode in the Missouri Ozarks, and I don't feel like we really captured 
the Ozarks. It was just somewhere that was really hard to break into. Um, it was hard to find stories. Um, like I showed that Wyoming website and talk about how little of an internet presence and a way to sort of get to that first step of talking to people um, was really hard in the Ozarks. And after we were done, you know, one of the big stories that we did took place pretty much entirely inside a maximum security prison that's in Jefferson City. It's not in the Ozarks, but the people in the story were from the Ozarks. So people were upset that we had done a story about crime and poverty that took place inside a prison that isn't even in the Ozarks, and we're, you know, we're talking about trying yeah. to really give a sense of that place. Um, and I love that story, and I think it's a great story, but I also hear that, I hear yeah, that complaint. And, and we had a, like the, the Dear Ozarks letter that we got was from a woman who grew up in the Ozarks and had left, and so she was remembering the Ozarks of her childhood. And after she heard the entire episode, she was like, but you guys didn't talk about people, you know, farming, gathering herbs and all of this old folk knowledge and this connection to the land didn't come out. But, you know, she said she was she was upset when she wrote to me about it. But she also said, maybe that Ozarks is gone and I'm holding on to a memory that that might not might not be easy to find. Um, and I just want to make one last quick point about that because I knew from like the stuff that I tried to read and, and tried to tried to research um, to get a sense of what is the Ozarks about and a lot of it is about a connection to the land, farming, fishing, hunting, um, that was clear. But our trip was scheduled in February. And I just like, this is a really basic thing, but weather influences what kind of stories you're gonna be able to tell. I could not find a story that we could do that happened in the woods, in the hills, in the Ozarks. So you don't hear that and so important, but we couldn't do it because it was cold. And I was like, okay, maybe there's someone who's like still hunting with a dog, even yeah. though it's really, even though it's February and the week we were there, there was an ice storm, like yeah. everything just got, it, it got yeah. really tough. To, to really find that outdoor story. So that, that was one of the points I just wanted to make is like, think about the weather. It really, it matters if you're trying to capture a sense of place. When, 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 you, when you're doing the type of program that we do and travel and, and work under the schedule that you got, and, and you're trying, I, I think it's very valuable to be an outside person looking at a place and kind of reporting and talking about it and presenting it to people. I think there's a lot of validity to it. Um, because y you can see things that the people who live there every day, I, the, the metaphor I like to think of is that like everybody's house has a certain smell, but when you've lived in that house, you don't smell it, you don't, you don't catch it. But when you go visit someone or someone comes into your house, they say, oh, what's that smell? Or, ooh. <laughs> You know, and so uh, and, and that's the value of kind of coming from the outside looking in. But there's also danger in that, and 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 there is possibility that that you don't go at the right at, at it the right way. I I don't think that we play into stereotypes. I think we push against them, but that still doesn't mean that we always 100% get what that place is. And on top of that, like I, I just don't believe that we could tell the story of a place in an hour. Uh, my 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 job and, and, and idea is to take a part of that place, maybe the essential part of it, and talk about that. Um, but we can always go back to places and tell more stories about it. So like, if we felt like we didn't get the Ozarks right, then chances are you'll probably hear another Ozarks episode uh, that will be scheduled sometime in the summer, um, <laughs> where we will endeavor to, to, to nail it right. So 
And, and the other thing that I would say is that when we're actually st finding stories and thinking about the spread of an episode, we are looking for stories that somehow like offer different com components of a place. Yeah. Um, so that you have a, you know, ideally you're going to have um, a broad experience of this place. Um, and, you know, again, sometimes that we accomplish that and sometimes we don't. We just did a Baltimore episode last spring and I was a little bit worried that we'd like, we're so focused on like kind of the inner city grit that we didn't have as much of the like suburban, you know, tree lined, which is like a huge piece of Baltimore. And there was one story that we, that really like was a, a factor in, but, but so I'm like trying to juggle all of these different versions of a place. Because nobody, you know, you can have areas where you agree, but lots of people live in a place and might as well live in a different city. So how we balance that is also sort of like touching, feeling it out as we go. Has, has everybody here seen The Wire? <laughs> yeah, um, I love Baltimore. I've been going there a lot. So uh, I was pretty confident that, because we, we decided that we were going to push up against the stereotype of The Wire itself. And I love The Wire. Um, so that that's an example of us pushing it up against the stereotype. But uh, and we also got an email from Bunk from The Wire saying he loved the show. Yeah, <laughs> that made my life. I yeah, was like, was... done, <laughs> <laughs> done. <laughs> Bunk just wrote me and said the show was hot. Forget it. <laughs> so anybody else? Any other questions? Yes, ma'am. I'm curious how you guys work when you like when you land in a city. Do you um, always work like Al and the producer together? Mm. Or do you divide and conquer the stories? No, we don't. We definitely don't divide. Like <laughs> Al is not a producer. Um, <laughs> uh, what I do is uh, usually I've got to go to every city, and so um, when when Tina and I first started doing this, Tina, Zach, and and I first started doing this, I was Zach like, Rosen is the other producer yeah. that used to be on before Laura joined the show. Yeah, and so I, I was on the uh, going to every location doing seven days at a time and then would leave Zach and go to Laura and do seven days and it just it was just too much and so what we've done now is that basically I do anywhere between uh, three to four days if it's somewhere that I want to be I'll stay longer um, but but usually three to four days um, I will either land at the same time with Tina and Laura, we'll meet at the airport and go forward, or they'll have been there for a couple days mm -hmm. and you know already have wrapped up stuff. So they do a lot of reporting um, without me. Um, and sometimes that's just solo. Sometimes we have an intern who comes along. Sometimes we have a videographer who comes along. Yeah. But so we, we can be anywhere from one to four people um, working on a story at any one time. Yeah, but I, I don't ever... Um, go out in the field and collect tape on my own, unless I'm working on like, um, like State of the Reunion has a podcast and I produce my own stuff in there sometimes. Um, but those tend to be stuff that isn't really tape heavy. Others? Questions? There's somebody over this way. Yes. How do you find the letter writers? Yeah, sure. The question was, how do we find the, the letter writers to write Dear Place? Um, we reach out to writers. Um, I like in some place like the Ozarks, I found a writers group um, that already existed, and so they sent out our call. We have a call for letters that that we send out that just lays out the assignment. You know, it can't be longer, take longer than two to three minutes to read out loud, or like about 400 words. Please address your place directly, like 
dear Vermont, you, I, use, use those pronouns. Um, and just try to be honest. We don't mind if someone just you know rags on the place they're from the whole time, as long as it captures something about the place. And and it and it is true to to their experience, um, but you know we we try to solicit letters from a lot of people, and then we choose one person to read the letter. Mm -hmm. But you know sometimes we'll really chase after um, a big writer who has a connection to some place, and sometimes it'll be someone who's lesser known. But um, we don't always reach out to writers, but you know writers tend to to work really well. Yeah. What, what I found when, so when I started on the show, Al had already developed this concept, but we didn't really have like a process for, for getting these. And at first my instinct was like the best characters that I have should write, a, like the, the people who are awesome should write a letter. And what I found was that they would totally write a letter and they didn't know how to, like they wouldn't know how to write, they wouldn't express themselves very well. And it just like ended up diminishing the audience's sense of the person. So we found that it's best, especially when you have to do this quite quickly, it's best to go after the people who really know, have, like, have a good game already and also have a good connection to the place. And I usually actually record a couple of them, like two or three, because the other thing that I found is that a good writer doesn't necessarily make a good reader. And you can coach them, but maybe sometimes only so much. So, In the back? Do you edit the letters? Yeah. Yeah, do we edit the letters? Yes, we, we, we definitely edit them. Yeah, because and usually, sometimes there's the back and forth with the writer. You know, after they've done a first draft, I'll come back at them and say, "Hey, there was that part where you were describing this tree, and could you give me a little more on that?" Or you know, so there is a an exchange there. Well, now that you have a successful show, what's going to be the next step? Mm -hmm. uh, Finding the I've money always to got to find yeah. it. <laughs> Finding the money to f the the question was we now have a that Kickstarter we have, campaign starting soon. Yeah. <laughs> the question was now that we have a successful show, what's the next step? Um, for me personally, I don't, I don't. I mean, I I guess we're successful. I don't look at it that way. I think that um, we are constantly evolving and learning to do what we do better. And we are um, at the beginning of every uh, season. I try to send. Uh, a letter to the entire staff saying, all right, so we did this good, but we sucked at this, and that's what we need to work on this time out. Um, this this season, one of the things that I, I wanted to make sure that we were doing was that we were having more fun, um, because sometimes the show can get pretty serious. So like, there's, there's so many things that I would do, uh, that I want to do to improve the show, but as a theater person, um, you know, I'm a a playwright and what I've learned from theater is process that things take time that you you know you get a, a, a draft of a script and then you listen to it then you do another draft and so forth and so on and so you just keep building off of it and I think I bring that sensibility to what we're doing with State of the Reunion is that I think that yeah we're doing good stuff I'm really proud of the work we've done I'm I'm even proud of the episodes where I felt like we didn't get it right because I know that the intention was to get it right and we are pushing to do better and we're learning from it. Um, but this is just, you know, one stage of it. Next stage up, we'll do things a little bit better. I think that this season, um, the big kind of idea that I had in my head was that I wanted us to break out of the location base, lo community and location 
type of thing and look at community in a different way because um, all around us we see community popping up that doesn't have to be tied to land. So for example, this last season we did an episode on comic books uh, and the culture of comic books. Um, I'm a huge comic book nerd and I'm proud to say that most of the stories I found, um, <laughs> but uh, which never happens. Um, uh, and um, and then we did a story on the internet um, and the communities that pop up out in the internet. And uh, and I think that those are some really engaging hours. I think that they they turned out really excellent. And what it kind of showed me was that we can push the concept to to a, another level and start looking at different types of community. And go ahead. And also, it, you know, our sense of place, especially in a digital age, is is fluid in a totally different mm -hmm. way. And so playing with the concept that we've developed for State of the Reunion in, you know, sort of through that lens is like sort of a, a new road to, to wander down. Yeah. Yes, ma'am, in the back. Um, are there any, are there any, ever any moments where you're being told these stories and you find that you have to like mask your emotions or like, no, stuff all, that people will say that make you mad? All or, the time. And how do you, how do you manage that? Well, you know, for me, like the, the anger one, uh, and I'll, I'll let Laura and Tina um, talk about their issues. For me, the anger is easy. I can deal with that. I can sit on it and then get in the car and uh, like yeah. <laughs> Laura and I did this interview with this guy recently and we got in the car and I'm just like, what a fucking bigot, you know, like I just, <laughs> like it infuriates, but I can hold that. So for me, that's fine. What I have issues with is, uh, is when someone's telling me something heartbreaking and I'm trying like not to cry with them and also, uh, I think, and I think the hardest one was in the Ozarks. We were um, one of the stories that, that uh, Laura was talking about. We're in a maximum uh, state prison, and um, we're there with this weird kind of love story. And this guy's in jail, and I had to get him. Yeah, you know, I couldn't let him off the hook. Like he had to tell everybody what he had done, and. Uh, I mean, he's just sitting there. He's a big guy. He's like six foot something with all these like weird neo-Nazi tattoos on him. And he's interviewing with me and Laura. Really and, surreal. And he's been in there for 20 years. Yeah, he's been in there for 20 years. And he's like, you know, and I, and I said, so tell me about that night. And he's like, you know, I'm not even going to bullshit you. You know, uh, he, to summarize it, he said the guy had 1,200 bucks. He stayed the night at the guy's house, went to sleep on his couch, got up in the middle of the night, picked up a shotgun, dragged him out into the woods, shot him in the head, stole the $1,200 and rode off. And I mean, he's telling that to me and I'm like freaked out. But then, you know, now he is like kind of a father to these kids that aren't his kids. You have to listen to the story, it's complex. But when he started talking about his family, like he was really like, breathing hard and stuff when he was talking about killing the guy like he was it was sincere remorse you could feel it but when he started talking about his kids and his wife he just broke down and i just my instinct was i just wanted to hug him i just but i had to like not move hold it in and i didn't want to cry with him but i wanted to cry with him i, I wanted to cry for the loss of that guy's life i wanted to cry for the fact that he is that his life turned out the way it did I just so for me that's the hardest part. That's the the hardest part of uh, 
of holding it in. And sometimes I, one of these two started crying somewhere. I was like, oh my God, I'm going to melt if I look at them. I can't, I don't, even, I don't even remember what story it was, but one of you guys started, was it you, Laura? That we we, I was crying during a phone interview. Yeah, we did. And I couldn't ask, yeah, I was criers, like, I guess, I, like, Al was like, do you have a question? I was like, um, <laughs> and I just had to be like, I'm sorry, I'm, I can't even think of a question because it was such yeah. a, that, that has never happened to me before. That was like a special, yeah, I mean, yeah, I get yeah, teary eyed, but that was yeah. extreme. So it, it yeah. uh, for me, the anger is easy. I can sit on the anger and deal with it because, you know, Tina and Laura and I, we, we have a lot of fun on the road and like we let off the steam that way. But, uh, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so so speaking of that, speaking, speaking of, of having fun, <laughs> um, the we have one last piece of tape, and, and if you have more questions, please come up and talk to us. We'd love to talk to you. Um, but you know, if you're trying to really uh, give people a sense of what it's like to to experience a place, um, why not uh, have them experience it vicariously through Al doing things or being made to do things, as the case might be? Um, so we often every I mean, time I eat when I'm on the road, she's putting a microphone in my face, yeah. and it drives me true. crazy every damn time. Or making him ride a mountain bike in an indoor warehouse in Cleveland in the middle of 90 degree July heat, or yeah, with or jeans in on. the case of the Bronx, which is the tape that we're gonna play you. Uh, so we did a story in the Bronx about a friary of Franciscan friars right in the middle of the South Bronx, um, and. I knew that there, that you know, I hoped that there would be something surprising about them and why they had chosen to live there and the culture of that place. Um, but I didn't quite expect what what actually happened. And this was this was something that was you know half planned and half serendipitous. Um, so this is this is just a little bit of tape from the the friary in the in the Bronx. The South Bronx is loud, chaotic, and crowded. But there's one block right in the middle of it that's almost an alternative universe. It's a community of Franciscan friars. They look like monks with long, gray, hooded robes, big beards, short hair. They've taken a vow of poverty and moved to places like the Bronx where they can live among the poor. I didn't really know what to expect when we went to meet them, but it was definitely not this. Oh, yes. We have been filling a bucket with water balloons because we are about to have our annual water balloon extravaganza. And so what we do is we take the water balloons to the fifth floor and we toss them out the fifth floor window so the kids can try to catch them. That's Father Lewis, head of the friary. Today is the annual block party on 156th Street, where the friars live and run a men's shelter. So you say water balloons to me on a hot summer day and I am sold. But then, Father Lewis ups the ante. He tells me that every year he gets the newest friars to stand together for a group photo. Everybody's in their staging areas. Oh, yes. And he tells them to stand right in front of the shelter. So we are in uh, the shelter on the fifth floor, and we're waiting for all the friars to gather below us for a group picture where we are going to bombard them with water balloons. Get ready. Get, you ready? Get ready? One. Oh, Johnny! Oh! 
Below us, madness ensues. As the friars, one minute, are waiting for a photo op, the next, they're dodging water balloons from the sky. Now, many of the holy men's heads are bald, and from the fifth floor, they shine like flesh-colored bullseyes. I haven't had this much fun since fifth grade. <laughs> Joe, a volunteer. <laughs> and that was a friar who yelled score. <laughs> um, so I think we're actually over time unless yeah, you have anything. No, I think, I think we're over time, but please come and come talk, talk to, to us. us. And if you weren't one of the people who came and put your flag on the map, yeah, please, please come and get a pin and put your flag on the map because we want to fill the map up as much and, as we can. And the U.S. can be like this little blossom of little pieces <laughs> of paper too. So. Thanks. Thanks so much. Thank you guys for coming.